apparently peace is hard to come by. And it's even a greater challenge to sustain. Since the days of the first century, there have been over 15,000 wars on this planet. Since the end of World War II in 1945, there have been an excess of 200 wars or significant conflicts on planet Earth. It seems to me that nation can't get along with nation. Most nations share the same testimony that at some point in its history, that nation has endured a civil war. So not only can nation not get along with nation, but brother can't get along with brother. To put it at a more fundamental level, in our culture, the divorce rate is at a 50% clip, so apparently husbands can't get along with wives and wives can't get along with husbands. I agree with the statistics that tell us that over the last 10 years, the number of divorces are on a decline. But what also, also should be noted is that the total number of marriages have also decreased as well. So that today, for every six marriages, there are nearly three divorces. Seems that nation can't get along with nation and brother can't get along with brother. It seems like husbands can't get along with wives and wives can't get along with their husbands. You would think that if there's any place where peace should reside, it's in the church of Jesus Christ. And yet, even our own state convention tells us that in the state of Alabama, more than half Southern Baptist churches are classified as conflicted. Now, what that means is, uh, is that there's a power struggle within the church. Uh, uh, the pastor doesn't get along with the people. The people don't get along with the pastor. There are interpersonal struggles that go on with di within different factions of the faith family. So it seems that wherever we go, peace is hard to come by, and it's even harder to sustain. There seems to be no peace politically or nationally or economically or racially or personally or even religiously. And the irony of all ironies is that on this day when we remember and applaud all those who have laid down their life for our own uh, political freedom and liberties, it's on this day that Jesus confronts us with this issue of peace. So today we continue our sermon series entitled The Good Life where we are studying the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher to have ever lived. Today we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 5, verse 9. I invite you to take a Bible and turn there. Focus on that sacred sentence. As you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Matthew chapter 5, let's read verse 9. Blessed are the peacemakers... For they'll be called sons of God. Heavenly Father, we stand before you as sinful men and sinful women. We are frail and we are fragile. Yet, Lord, we desire to be called sons and daughters of God. Help us this day to be peacemakers. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. In the Bible, there are over 400 references to peace. This morning, I am not going to itemize all 400 of those for you. But allow me to mention a handful. In a place like Psalm chapter 29, verse 11, we are told that the Lord gives peace to his people. The prophet Isaiah said that there is no peace 
for the wicked. In Luke chapter 2, it's the angels who say glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace to men upon whom his favor rests. At the end of John's gospel, it's Jesus who says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. In a place like Colossians chapter 1, it's the Apostle Paul who says that God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in Jesus Christ and through him to reconcile all things unto himself by making peace through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. In Philippians, we read the words that God gives us peace that surpasses all understanding. It even guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus comes along and says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. I want to tell you up front that Jesus is not giving us a declaration of how a person becomes a child of God, but rather he's telling us how we ought to behave as a child of God. For nowhere does Jesus insinuate that the way you become a child of God is through mental nirvana of somehow getting to a peaceful state. Jesus is not advancing a Mideastern uh, mystical religion. Jesus says if you want to be at peace with God, it only comes through a personal relationship with Lord Jesus. And so Jesus is not telling us how we become children of God. In this statement, he is telling us how we ought to behave as children of God. For the Bible is consistently clear. The way a person goes from death unto life is through faith in Jesus. In the opening lines of John's gospel, we read, To those who received him, to those who believe upon his name, he gave them the right to be called children of God. Paul says to the Galatian church, all of you are children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So the moment you go from no faith to faith, you become a son or a daughter of God. The only way for you to know peace, the only way for you to know joy, the only way for you to know life, the only way for you to have faith is by believing upon Jesus, by trusting and turning, trusting in him for salvation, turning from your sin. That's the only way a person becomes a child of God. When Jesus makes his statement in chapter 5, verse 9, he is not telling us how to become a child of God. He's telling us how to behave as children of God. So, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. It's very important for us to note that Jesus says that we are to be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. You say, well, that's just a matter of semantics. No, I think there's a big difference. I think there's a huge difference between being a peacemaker and a peacekeeper. A peacekeeper is a person who strives to keep peace at all costs by avoiding conflict. It's the person who sweeps the conflict under the carpet. It's the person that turns a blind eye and deaf ear towards anything that could be potentially uh, conflicting. So the peacekeeper says, I'm going to keep peace doing everything I possibly can to avoid conflict. You know, there's some husbands and wives that operate that way. They never address anything. They're just peacekeepers. They just say, we're not going to tackle it. We're not going to address it. We're not going to talk about it. We're just going to sweep it under the carpet. There are some parents that act this way. 
We don't want to get Johnny into a, a tailspin. We don't want to ruffle his feathers. We don't want to address Sally and all of her disobedience. So we don't want to address anything. We're just going to kind of let them go along and get along. There are some peacekeepers that call themselves pastors. I mean, all they do is just stand up and keep the peace. We don't want to rock the boat. We don't want to do anything that's going to uh, make the, the waters rough or edgy. I mean, we just want to kind of go along and get along. There are people even in politics, and they're nothing more than peacekeepers. All they do, they strive to keep the peace by avoiding conflict at all costs. Jesus did not call you to be a peacekeeper. Jesus called you to be a peacemaker. A peacemaker is a person who acts in such a way to remove barriers so that reconciliation can be achieved. That's a big difference than a peacekeeper. A peacemaker is a person who acts in such a way to remove barriers so that reconciliation can be achieved. The definition of peace is not the absence of conflict. The definition of peace is the presence of reconciliation. Where there is genuine reconciliation, there is genuine peace. And sometimes, in order to be reconciled, conflict must erupt. You say, well, where do you get this? Well, this is exactly how God dealt with us in Christ. God is not a peacekeeper. God is a peacemaker. It is not that God swept your sin or my sin under the carpet. It is not that God has ever lowered the bar of commitment. It is not that the Lord has ever turned a blind eye or a deaf ear towards your vile disobedience or my horrendous disobedience. It is the Lord who says, I'm going to attack it. I'm going to confront it. And God confronted our sin at the Calvary of Christ. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us. He died in our place. All the holy hostility that God had that should have been poured out upon us for all of eternity was meted out against Jesus. And once again, it's in the Corinthian correspondence where Paul says that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting men's sins against them, but counting men's sins against Christ. It's not that God simply turned his back on Jesus. It's not that God the Father ignored the cries of the Son. No, Paul says that God was working behind the scenes. And behind the scenes, God was removing the barrier. He was removing the barrier of sin in your life and in mine so that we could be declared righteous in God's sight, innocent in his standing, so that that barrier could be removed, so that genuine reconciliation might be achieved. God was reconciling a world of lost sinners unto himself in Christ Jesus. So he is our motto. He is our model. He is our God. So we follow the lead of Jesus. So Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. For they shall be called sons and daughters of God. So then it becomes the question, what does it practically look like to be a peacemaker? And I'm so glad that you asked. Because this morning, I want to give you four words. These four words describe what it is to be a peacemaker. And the four words are simply mend, extend, pray, and greet. And in the Sermon on the Mount, we find descriptions of all four of those words. We don't have to go very far for Jesus to portray for us what it looks like to be a peacemaker. First, as peacemakers, we are called to mend relationships. As peacemakers, we are called to mend relationships. All we have to do is turn to 
Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. I invite you to look at that verse with me. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. Seems that what Jesus is saying is that hostility hampers holy worship. Hostility between brothers and sisters in Christ. Hostility hampers holy worship. And Jesus creates a scenario. He said, let's suppose that you're in a worship service. Let's suppose you come to the portion where you're about to lay your offering at the altar before the Lord. And it finally crosses the screen of your mind that someone has something against you. What do you do? Jesus says a peacemaker leaves the offering at the altar, goes and seeks out the brother, is reconciled to him, and then comes back into the worship service. My friends, this flies in the face of what we normally do. We never do this. I want you to notice what Jesus said. He said that if someone has something against you, then go and be reconciled to him. Now, can we be really honest this morning? If we ever, even remotely, remember that somebody might have something against us, what do we always normally say? That's his problem. It's not mine. He's the one with the problem. He's got something against me. That's no skin off my back. That's his problem, not mine. And Jesus comes along and says, no, that's your problem, not his. Because as a peacemaker, we do everything we possibly can to remove the barriers to achieve reconciliation. So Jesus says, if you're in a worship service and you realize that someone has something against you, because you're a peacemaker, you're going to do everything you can to go and be reconciled to that brother or sister. Because if you don't, hostility will hamper holy worship. Now also in the worship service, if you realize that you have something against a brother or sister, then you better extend forgiveness to them as well. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is going to say, if you forgive your brother when he sins against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you don't forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father won't forgive you. Friends, we're going to come to that verse later, and I'll go ahead and tell you now, and I'll tell you then, that verse scares me to death. That somehow, if I refuse to forgive someone who's wronged me, if I refuse to issue forgiveness, that will serve as a blockade against God's forgiveness towards me. I don't know about you, but that scares me to death. So Jesus is saying, as peacemakers, we mend relationships. If somebody has an ax to grind against us, that's not their problem, it's our problem. If we have an ax to grind against somebody else, that's our problem as well. And we need to issue forgiveness. It would be great if we uh, worked into our vocabulary that two-word phrase, I'm sorry. If we said that on a regular basis, our marriages would be better, the workplace would be better, school would be better, the recreation field would be better. Uh, every, the church would be better if we simply could say, I'm sorry. 
But most of the time when we get to the point of, of trying to say the words, I'm sorry, this is usually how it goes. We go up to somebody and we say, listen, if I've offended you, if I said something that was hurtful, if I did something inappropriate, then I'm sorry. My brother and sister, that is not an apology. An apology doesn't say if, it says since. Hey, listen, since I hurt you, since I said something that wasn't appropriate, since I offended you, please know from the bottom of my heart, I'm sorry. Those two words go miles. They change everything. It's a game changer. When you go to a brother or sister and you say, I'm sorry, what are you doing? You're being a peacemaker. You're mending fences. You're removing barriers so that reconciliation can be achieved. Do you remember the letter that Paul wrote to the Philippian church? When I stop and think about this, I'm amazed because Paul is the founding pastor. He writes a letter back to the church at Philippi. He loves this church so much. When the current pastor would have received the letter, he would have gathered the congregation in an assembly kind of like this one today. He would have said, hey, we got a letter from our founding pastor, Paul. And everybody go, woo, that's great, praise the Lord. And now I want to read that for you. Okay, that sounds great. He reads the letter. When he gets to the end of it, which is chapter four, Paul literally calls out on the carpet two ladies who are at each other's throats. He says in chapter four, verses one and two, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche, agree with each other in the Lord. He's not choosing sides. He's, he's not saying one's right, the other's wrong. He goes on to say, these are lovely ladies because they've assisted me in the gospel ministry. It's not that they're pagans. It's not that they're reprobates. They just have gotten crossways one with the other. So he says, I plead with you, be peacemakers, mend the relationship. Can you imagine if today I called out Cindy and Sally. And I said, Cindy and Sally, y'all need to reconcile to each other as in the Lord. You go, oh, I can't believe the passages did that, right? I mean, because it'd be unthinkable. But Paul does not even have to use their last name, right? Everybody knows uh, Syntyche and, and Euodia. Everybody knows their names. And Paul says, listen, we're called to be peacemakers. What does it mean to be a peacemaker? Well, we mend relationships. That's what we do. Because this is how we behave as children of God. We cannot nurse a grudge. We cannot refuse forgiveness towards other people. It is detrimental to our own walk with Christ. It, we, we have to mend relationships. So this morning I wonder, is there somebody who has a broken relationship with you that needs to be mended? Then brother or sister, the impetus is upon you to go seek them out. Be reconciled to your brother as much as it depends on you. Live at peace with them. Paul says not only do we mend relationships, but we extend mercy. Once again, we don't have to go very far. Matthew chapter 5, verse 38. Look at this verse with me. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, then go with him two miles. Jesus, once again, is flipping the script. This is counterintuitive. I must confess to you, I apparently am not a very good parent. Because like you, um, my advice to my children goes contrary to what Jesus is saying on the surface. I tell my children, my son especially, hey, listen, don't let me ever hear that you started a fight. 
But if some punk starts something with you, <laughs> you got daddy's permission to finish it, all right? I mean, most dads in the crowd, that's what we say, right? Buddy, don't you start a fight. But don't let anybody push you around, man. You got to take up for yourself. It flies in the face of what Jesus says. If, if I, tell your, I tell my children, um, listen, if somebody takes something of yours that doesn't belong to them, you go get it back. I mean, it's yours. Don't let them push you around. Don't let them take something that doesn't belong to you. And then we always tell our children, don't you let anybody force you to do something you're not comfortable doing. Don't let anybody force you because of peer pressure to do something that you don't want to do. Yet Jesus says, if somebody slaps you across the right cheek, you turn the left cheek. If somebody steals your cloak, you uh, shirt, you give them your cloak or your jacket. And if somebody asks for you to go one mile, you go a second mile. Jesus begins by saying an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which actually is a pretty good motto because it ensures that the punishment fits the crime. It was adopted by a lot of governments in the past, but uh, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If you take my eye, I can take your eye. If you punch me in the mouth and I lose my tooth, I can punch you in your mouth and you lose your tooth if I can hit as hard as you can. So an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It ensured that the punishment wasn't too excessive so that if, if you stole my shovel, I couldn't burn down your house. That'd be a little extreme, right? Or if you punched me in the gut, I wouldn't kill you. I mean, it'd be a little extreme. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. The religious rabbis adopted this philosophy even in church life. They said, well, if it's fair for the goose, it's fair for the gander. So if it works in civil life, it can work in religious life. So if somebody offends you, you have a right to offend them back. But make sure, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, make sure your criticism doesn't exceed the criticism that's been leveled against you. So if somebody says something mean against you, you say something mean right back to them. If somebody ridicules you, you ridicule them right back. If somebody takes something of yours, you take something of theirs. And so it's an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It seems all fair in love and war, right? Until Jesus comes along. And Jesus says, if you're going to be a peacemaker, you've got to remove the barriers so that reconciliation can be achieved. So you must extend mercy. If somebody ridicules you, it's not that you're a doormat. It's not that you never defend yourself. It's just that even in your defense, you're merciful. You extend mercy to them. If somebody takes something, it's not that you're going to go and take something of theirs, but you extend mercy to them. If a Roman soldier ordered for you to carry his pack for one mile, and he was... Uh, under his rights and authority to ask any citizen to carry his pack for a mile. Jesus said, if that Roman soldier asks you to do that, then you say, not only will I carry it one mile, Mr. Soldier, but I'll carry it two miles. Now why would Jesus say that? Jesus says this because we're peacemakers. We extend mercy. Why do we extend mercy? Well, because God has extended mercy towards us, and that's exactly right. But also, Jesus wants us to earn the right to be heard. You walk with a Roman soldier for one mile, you can share the gospel with him. You walk with him two miles, and you can share twice as much of the gospel with him, right? So you've earned the right to be heard. Because he would look at you and say, why in the world are you going with me? Why are you showing me such massive mercy? 
And that's your key, that's your door, that's your entrance to say, because God has been merciful to me, so I am going to be merciful to you. We are not to act like the watching world. If we call ourselves Christians and nobody can tell the difference in our lives, then we're probably not a Christian. Because we're not supposed to act like the world. We're supposed to be so contrary, so different, that it even causes pagans to say, wait a minute. You didn't respond the way most people respond. You didn't retaliate the way way most people retaliate. You're not living the way most people live in these times. What gives? And in that moment, you have now earned the right to be heard. So, we're peacemakers. Which means we mend relationships. It also means we extend mercy. But third... A peacemaker is called to pray for enemies. A peacemaker is called to pray for enemies. Once again, all we have to do is go to Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. The teachings of Jesus are hard. Why in the world do we have to show an act of kindness to terrorists who want to blow up our buildings? Why should we have to pray and love the wacko who wants to come in and shoot up an elementary school filled with innocent grade school children? Why would we want to be kind to idiots who detonate bombs at marathons. Why would we want to be nice to people that have it out for us? And the answer is because that's how God acted towards us. You remember the scripture says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Long before we became an ally of God, we were an enemy of God. You remember this? I mean, Paul says that by nature, we are objects of God's wrath. We're guilty. We're sinful. We're enemies of God. Yet God sent Jesus into the world so that enemies could be made into allies of the Almighty and go beyond allies, but be declared friends of God. And not not only friends of God, but family of God. So Jesus came And he came for us so that we as enemies might end up in the faith family. This is remarkable. And before you ever became a Christian, Jesus was praying for you. In John chapter 17, Jesus prays for himself. He prays for his disciples. And he prays for all believers. That includes you and me. Long before we ever knew of Christ, long before we ever existed, we were on the mind of Christ. And Jesus was praying for us in the Garden of Gethsemane. He was praying for you. Your face was in his mind. Your name was on his heart. He was praying for you, brother. He was lifting you up, sister. He was praying for you while you were still an enemy of God, long before you ever became part of the faith family. And you recall that when Jesus is on the cross, And the crowd is hurling insults at him. They're laughing at him. They're spitting upon him. They're cursing him. Jesus says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. 
If you were nailed in the spot of Jesus right then, then and there, what would you have said? Don't answer that out loud. What would you have done? People spitting on you and laughing at you, ridiculing you, and you know you've got the power to call down 10,000 angels, and in one fell swoop, you could wipe out the whole lot. What would you do? I would at least give a wink and a nod. Knock out a couple of them right? But what does Jesus do? Jesus prays for them. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. My friends, it is really hard to pray for somebody and then get up off your knees and still hate them. This works. You pray for that so-called friend who stabs you in the back. You pray for that boss who seems to have it out for you. You pray for that coworker who is not a team player. You pray for that person at church that ridiculed you viciously five years ago. I promise prayer changes things. Sometimes prayer changes that person. And sometimes prayer changes the one doing the praying. But regardless, people change when they pray. Jesus says we are peacemakers. What does that mean? That means that we go out of our way to remove barriers so that reconciliation can be achieved. So we mend relationships. So we extend mercy. So we pray for enemies. But fourth, if we are called to be peacemakers, we greet offenders with grace. In chapter 5, verse 47, Jesus simply says, and if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. The more I read the Beatitudes, the more I study the Sermon on the Mount, the more I'm convinced that Jesus is repulsed by any faith that doesn't dramatically transform your life. I mean, I think Jesus vomits in his mouth. I think that Jesus is so repulsed at anything called religion, anything called Christianity that doesn't result in a complete transformation of life. Jesus uses an example. He says, when you go to the marketplace, when you go to the synagogue, when you go to the church, and when you greet only your friends, when you greet only your brothers, but you shun your foes, who doesn't do that? I mean, even pagans do that. A pagan knows how to greet friends and shun foes. And Jesus says, we've got to live beyond that. If the world tells us that if somebody slaps us, we slap them back, we've got to live beyond that. If the world says that uh, you've got to go one mile, then we've got to go two miles because we've got to live beyond that. If, if the world says an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, we've got to go beyond that. If the world says you only greet your friends and then you shun your foes, we've got to go beyond that because Jesus wants a life that is radically transformed, upside down, inside out. He wants us to be uh, turned inside out, flipped upside down, and he wants everything to be different and everything to be changed. Jesus is repulsed. At people who say they have Christianity, but their life is no different than the world outside. You know, the problem with sin is not the world around us, but it's the world within us. And worldliness always wants to call sin normal 
and call righteousness weird. The world always does that. The world always calls sin normal and calls righteousness weird. And Jesus says, be weird. (laughs) He says, be weird for the gospel. Be transformed inside out because everything about us is counter-cultural. Everything goes against the grain. So my friends, let me ask you, has there ever been a time whether you're in church, at the workplace, at the ball field, has there ever been a time when you've gone out of your way to avoid somebody who has angered you, betrayed you, hurt you, or disappointed you? Has there ever been a time when you have literally changed course so that you can avoid having to see that person that has ridiculed you. Now, all of us ought to be nodding our head up and down because all of us have done it from time to time. And what Jesus is telling us is that when you do that, you have now reduced yourself down to a reprobate. You're not living like the redeemed. You're living like a pagan. When you go out of your way to avoid people that have hurt you, you're not living the righteous life. You're living like a reprobate. When you go out of your way, so you know they go out this door, so you're going to go out that door. You know they park down here, so you're going to park up here. You know they go to this grocery store, so you're going to another one. You know when they have their break, so you're going to have your break at a different time. Why? Because you don't want your path to cross. My friends, when you do that, when you're friendly to people who are friendly with you, and when you shun your foes, you're living just like the world. I'm living just like a reprobate. And Jesus says... Our religion has to do so much more than that. If we call ourselves a Christian and we look just like the world, we really have to question whether the truth of God is in us. So Jesus says we're peacemakers. We're not peacekeepers. We're peacemakers. We live life in such a way that we do our best to remove barriers so that reconciliation can be achieved. So we mend relationships. So we extend mercy. So we pray, even for people we don't like that much. And we greet offenders with grace. We go out of our way to go up to them and to speak to them the truth in love. Now, Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons and daughters of God. He's not telling us, How we become a child of God, he's telling us how we ought to behave as children of God. So you can do all these things. There's no guarantee that reconciliation will take place. But in the words of the Apostle Paul, you do everything in your power, as much as it depends on you, to live at peace with everyone. Peace is hard to attain. Humanly, it's an impossibility. There is no way humanly that we can be at peace with God in and of ourselves. There's no way that we we can have peace within ourselves. There's no way we can have peace one with the other apart from a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only by Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit that you and I can do what is humanly impossible, which is to be at peace with God, ourselves, and fellow man. So only through Christ. Can this take place? So Horatio Spafford is exactly right. When peace like a river 
attendeth my way. When sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, so I bear it no more. So praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. My friend, you were saved for a reason. You were saved on purpose. You were saved to be a peacemaker. So live your life in an effort to remove barriers so that reconciliation can be achieved. Today, people have come to your mind. Scenarios have been replayed against the mind, against the screen of your mind. And this morning, I ask you, what are you going to do with that? It's the Spirit of God that put that there. Oh, my friend, if you don't know Jesus as Savior, then today I call you unto his salvation. If you are a believer, I pray that you will take heed to what the Spirit of God is saying to you. If on this day you desire to join this faith family, I want you to come. But realize this is not your ordinary church. This is a place where we strive to live like Jesus. We want to be peace. Makers, because blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons and daughters of God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you as you move in this invitation. We pray that we'll respond in obedience. And Lord Jesus, as you bring people to our mind and you replace scenarios across the screen of our mind, help us to heed that as a gift from you. Help us to do our best to make peace. Father, we give you this invitation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.